Father, we thank you for this privilege to worship as your people. We thank you that this gathering here, it's not by accident, it's not a, a coincidence, but it is part of your good plan. And we ask that you would help us now, that you would grant us wisdom as we talk, as we learn about a very difficult topic. Help us to hear your word. But not only to hear your word, but help us to live out your word, to live out our lives according to the truths of your word. We pray that your spirit will guide and empower this time, and that all that we do, Lord, you be honored and glorified. We put these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as many of you know, I was on sabbatical for three months from mid-August to mid-November. And for my sabbatical, I had several goals. To think through family planning, future ministry, to study, learn more about preaching, to visit, learn from other churches, to travel, to exercise, to rest. What wasn't on the list of goals was to attend funerals. Throughout the month of September, I attended a funeral almost every weekend. And this led me to think a lot about death. I thought a lot about my own life, the lives of my family and friends, the lives of my family here at Maranatha. I thought a lot about the fragility of life and the promises that the Lord has for every believer, not only in this life, but the life to come. And with this in mind, my goal this morning, my hope this morning, is to encourage you, church, to live in light of the death of our risen Christ. My hope is to encourage you to live in light of the death of our risen Christ. And we're going to think through this encouragement with two points. Two points. And the first point is this. Death is real. Death is real. And we're going to consider this first point, the reality of death, in three ways. Death's origin, death's effects, and death's reminder. First, death's origin. As was read before, Genesis 3, 7 to 19 says, And to Adam the Lord said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Here we have the pronouncement of God's curse on Adam, the representative of mankind. And this curse, it's found within the context of God creating man, putting man in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And he commanded Adam, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But what follows in the next chapter is the serpent tempting Eve, saying, did God actually say 
You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Did he actually say that? Did God actually say? This question is the root of every temptation to disobey and turn away from God. Did God actually say? Did God actually say to not worry because he cares and provides for me? Did God actually say to forgive those who have wronged me? Did God actually say to count it all joy when trials come? Did he actually say these things? Such questions actually question God. Such questions question his word, his character. And if we were to dig to the roots of such thoughts, we'd find pride. We'd find a defiant attitude. We'd find a desire to take over God's place. To make one's own foolish standards. So what these passages teach us is that death has to be understood in the context of who God is. Death must be fundamentally understood in relation to God. It didn't just come about from nowhere. It didn't just come about naturally over time. It is the result of sin. It is the result of willful disobedience against the perfect and holy God. So we can't take God out of the picture if we want to fully understand the reality of death. Because if we do take him out of the picture, we misunderstand death. And we wrongly believe that it can be dealt with apart from God. Now some may believe that death as punishment for disobedience is a bit too drastic. That it's out of line with God's loving and kind nature. That God was like that in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, he's not like that anymore. That even though you know, we will experience physical death here on this earth, no one is actually deserving of spiritual death. My parents used to own a grocery store in Westchester, and every so often, my brother would go and help cover for them at the store for whatever reason. And because he'd work at the store here and there, he wasn't very familiar with the fluctuating prices of all the different fruits and vegetables. All right, some of these items would have sticker prices on them. Some of them would be labeled, so okay, that makes it clear. But for those that didn't have stickers, you know what my brother would do? He would just ring up whatever price he thought was appropriate at the time. And it turns out he was never actually questioned by any of the people because he punched the keys on the cash register just so confidently. And then my dad would come home that night, or you know, and he would complain. Hey, your brother Phil, he's overcharging, he's undercharging, he's just charging whatever he wants for all of these items, right? All the time, right? I know this is a very obvious statement, but it has to be said, our God is not like my brother. And we have to be very thankful that he isn't. But, let me explain, we may very well be tempted to project human standards onto God. We may be very tempted to view God through the lens of our emotions or our circumstances or our own standards. But we have to remember that God is perfect and holy, that he is just and unchanging. And this means that God was very precise with the price for disobeying his word, that price being death 
both physical and spiritual. He didn't just flippantly just say, you know what, I think you owe, no. He was very precise with the price for disobeying his word. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. What we owe for our sin is death. What is owed to God for any sinful thought, any sinful word, any sinful deed is death. And this is where it all started. Secondly, death's effects. And back in seminary, I had a friend who liked to give Bible trivia. Sounds like one of our deacons over men's ministry. Um, I have a friend who really likes to give Bible trivia to his youth students. And one of the questions was, who never died in the Bible? And he was calling on different kids, and they were giving out their answers. And usually, when you give out Bible trivia, the answer one student always gives is Jesus. So one student raises their hand and says, Jesus. Jesus is not the answer. Jesus died, right? Jesus did die, right? So youth students, Jesus did die, if you ever asked this. But in the Bible, there are only two people who didn't experience death. We see in Genesis 5, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And in 2 Kings 2, a chariot of fire appeared suddenly with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven while talking with Elisha. Enoch and Elijah are the only two that didn't experience death. And how this happened, what this means, that's a discussion for another time. But the fact that only two didn't experience death shows the magnitude of death's effects. Romans 5.12 says, As sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What God promised for disobedience was death. Physical death, which is the separation of the soul from the body, and spiritual death, which is the separation of the soul from God. He promised death for disobedience. And this physical death is seen in Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, other than the medical professionals and first responders here, I don't know how many of you have touched a dead body. Personally, I will never forget when I held my grandmother's hand as she was laying in her coffin with no breath, with no heartbeat. Her hand, it was so stiff, so cold, I I will never forget that moment. And many of you have experienced loved ones pass away, whether it's old age, cancer, addiction, or an accident. And you know firsthand the devastation of death. You've experienced just how much pain death brings, and you live with the weight of such loss each day. You still have in your mind images that will never be forgotten. And you don't have to be convinced that death hurts because you know that it hurts. You know that it hurts. 
And one thing that I've come to realize as I've been thinking a lot about death is this. The church, we are not ready to care for those who are grieving. We are really under-equipped. So I wanted to share just a side note, a good resource to equip you in helping others who are grieving. The book is called What Grieving People Wish You Knew by Nancy Guthrie. This is the only time I give you permission to open up your phones and go to Amazon, right? (laughs) What Grieving People Wish You Knew by Nancy Guthrie. It's a very thoughtful, practical resource to learn about how you can care for those who are hurting. And this may even be a resource to work through as a family so that our children are more prepared to help family and friends who are grieving. So that's just a side note. What Grieving People Wish You Knew by Nancy Guthrie. Now, the effects of death are not just physical. It's also spiritual. Just as much as we are physical beings, we are also spiritual beings. And because of our sin against God, our relationship with God has been completely ruined. And we are unable to fix our relationship with Him. As it says in Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And Romans 8, 7-8 says that in our sin, we are hostile to God. That there is actually no desire to submit to God's word because, in fact, we cannot. We are dead spiritually and there's nothing that we can do to come alive spiritually. Consider the story of Noah and the great flood in Genesis 6 and notice the vast effects of sin and death in this story. In Genesis 6, 5, it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And we skip to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now when we read the story, we often emphasize Noah and his family and the animals being saved by God and we focus on what's going on inside the ark. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with God's saving work. But I think we are quick to glance over just how horrible, just how chaotic the scene was outside of that ark. Just imagine how horrible of a scene it was outside of those wooden walls. People of all ages drowning, screaming in fear, dead bodies floating everywhere. Sit in that for a moment. It's a horrifying but it's a picture, an accurate picture of the physical, spiritual effects of the death that was brought about because of man's sin. Its effects are deep. It is vast. It is devastating. And all of this leads to death's reminder. The reality, the effects of death should humble us. It should remind us that we stand before God helpless, that we stand before God hopeless, 
We are sinners fully deserving of death, both physical and spiritual. And any attempts to mask the reality of death, any self-sufficient efforts to try to deal with the effects of death can't do anything of lasting value. So brothers and sisters, believers, it would be wise to think more about what we've been saved from. Because when we forget about the reality, when we forget about the effects of death, it becomes easier and easier to detach yourself from the need of Christ. It becomes easier and easier to detach yourself from the promises that he gives you and to trust a little bit more and more in yourself. I think this is what's being displayed in Jesus' parable in Luke 18 about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And as I read this, I encourage you to examine your own heart. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And for those of you who do not trust in Christ, may I encourage you to consider the reality. May I encourage you to consider the effects of death that you fully deserve because of your own sin. May I encourage you, like this tax collector, to turn, to trust in the Lord who is full of mercy, to know that the Lord receives those who humbly recognize their need for Him, to know that He fully saves sinners like us. Would you turn and trust in him? These funerals each week reminded me about the reality, the effects of sin and death. But the Lord graciously reassured me over and over again with the following truth. He reminded me that death is conquered. And this is my second point. Death is conquered. And I hope we never say that with a light heart. That is such a powerful, hope-filled truth that we as Christians can cling to, that death is conquered. Because Jesus completely changes how we view death's origin and effects. In Christ, we no longer view death through a lens of hopelessness, but we now view death through a lens of hope and victory. And this is what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 58. And I want to read it one more time. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, right? so when on our flesh God gives us this new glorified body, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, 
where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In this later section of his letter to the Corinthian church, Paul is addressing those who have been saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. And he writes of such false teachings, such false thoughts, it's not in line with the truth of the gospel, which he summarizes in the beginning of chapter 15. In the beginning of chapter 15, he writes that the gospel, which has been given to him, handed down to him, is of first importance. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And if it was the case that Christ was not raised from the dead, everything that Paul is writing about, putting an end to the division within the church, addressing sexual immorality and lawsuits among believers, instructions about corporate worship, all of it is in vain. And not only that all is preaching, the whole Christian faith, it's in vain. And he even writes that Christians, of all people, are to be most pitied if Christ was not raised from the dead. Now Paul puts all that nonsense to rest in verse 20, where he writes, but in fact, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. He emphasizes that Christ's resurrection is indeed true. There's absolutely no need to entertain such foolish talk. And he writes this because death did not have the last word on Christ, and it will not have the last word on on believers. And just like Christ, who is the first fruit of the resurrection of the dead, which means he reigns from his heavenly throne right now. This This should blow your mind, that Christ is reigning right now from his heavenly throne with a fully resurrected and glorified body. Just like Christ, one day when Christ returns, when Christ returns, so too will all believers be given a resurrected, a perfected, a glorified body when he returns. And this promise of the believer's resurrection is so real that physical death of a Christian is referred to as sleep in verses like 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 10. Death is referred to as sleep. And all of this sets up verses 54 to 58. Paul's statement that death will be swallowed up forever in verse 54 is referring to a prophecy found in Isaiah 25, 6 to 9. And this is where Isaiah the prophet writes, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. 
And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. If you know anything about the book of Isaiah, it's filled with sobering accounts of Israel's sin and rebellion and warnings of the coming judgment. So to hear this promise was of great encouragement to God's people during Isaiah's time. And what Paul is doing here, he's pointing back, but he's also pointing forward. He points back to this promise given during Isaiah's time, but he also points forward, knowing that this promise will be fully and finally fulfilled through the resurrection on the last day. Because it's on that last day when Christ returns, death, the final enemy, will be swallowed up completely and it will have no more hold on God's people. Now, as Paul continues to speak about this death, he alludes to Hosea 13, 14. And he speaks about death in a mocking way, where he makes mockery of death in verse 55. And he very much wants to emphasize that death no longer has any power over believers. And he expounds on why death has no sting, why it has no more victory in verses 56 and 57. Right? The sting of death comes from sin. In other words, like I mentioned earlier, the deadly blow of death, it only exists because of our sin. But the power behind this death, the power behind our sin, it's the law. And what does Paul mean here? The law mentioned here is not just referring to the law of Moses given to Israel, but I think it goes further back to the law, the command given to Adam and Eve, which they disobeyed in the Garden of Eden. So the power of sin, its ability to bring about death, it comes from the law. And it might be helpful to think of the law as an x-ray. An x-ray reveals what's wrong with the body, but it can't do anything to actually heal the broken bones. So the law, similarly, reveals our sin. It reveals what is broken about us by showing that humans, we are incapable of obeying God perfectly. The law doesn't create sin, it doesn't cause us to sin, but it reveals our very nature that our nature is to rebel, it's a sin against God. But Paul is saying that the sting of death, the power of sin, it's been rendered useless through Christ, through his death, through his resurrection. Because Christ, who obeyed the law perfectly without any sin, he removed the sting of death. He removed the power of sin by laying down his perfect life on the cross. He conquered death through his own death and he set us free from enslavement to the law. And it's through our union with Christ, why we are one with Christ when we place our faith in him, it's through our union with Christ that we are righteous children of God. And the promise that we can cling to is that God will not let us die any more than he left Jesus in the grave. That is a promise that we can cling to. And that is the promise that Paul is clinging to that drives his whole argument as he tries to encourage the Corinthian church. As one commentator writes, we have the victory 
because we, we have been moved from being in Adam to being in Christ, where we receive power to love and to obey God. We are no longer in Adam, but we are in Christ. And it's for these reasons that Paul encourages fellow believers to be steadfast, to be immovable, to always abound in the work of the Lord, because we know that our labor for the Lord is not in vain. So church, I want to ask this question. Which death are you driven by? Which death are you living according to? Is it your own physical death? Or is it the death of Christ? Matthew McCullough writes in his book, Remember Death, The Surprising Path to Living Hope. He writes this, When we think carefully about death and how it swallows up what we love about life now, we're prepared to see that what Jesus offers is what we've needed all along. Jesus offers eternity. He offers the promise of deathless life to all who trust in him. And that that means he offers joy that won't be clouded by sorrow. Maranatha, what I fear is that we intentionally and unintentionally live according to the values that are driven by our physical death. We may know in our minds that there's more to life after death. We may know in our minds that, yes, eternity is promised for all who trust in Christ. But functionally, in the day-to-day, we live as if this life in the world is all there is. So we pursue comfort and security like the world. We worry and fear like the world. We wield power and hold grudges like the world. We seek approval like the world. My fear is that we think and act too much like the world. But what would it look like if we were to look beyond our physical death? What would it look like to look beyond and look deeply into the death of our risen Christ? What would it look like to know that we have died with Christ and have been raised to new life in him, with him, to pursue values that are built upon the death of our risen Lord? What would that look like? I believe that our grip on worldly comfort, approval, power, and control, it would start to loosen. And we'd start to cling more closely more tightly to Jesus. And we trust more and more that such desires, they can only be fully satisfied in Christ. The late pastor Tim Keller wrote the following earlier this year before passing away from pancreatic cancer. Jesus lives And death is now but my entrance into glory. Jesus lives and death is now but my entrance into glory. Courage then, my soul, for thou hast a crown of life before thee. Thou shalt find thy hopes were just. Jesus is the Christian's trust. How amazing is that? 
How amazing is that? To face death and to be able to say those words of truth. Maranatha, I encourage you, let us be a family, let us be a body of believers that strive to live in light of the death of our risen Christ. Let's be reminded of how amazing it is that we can say that death, it's not the end, but it's actually going to be used by God to bring us even closer to him. That when death comes, and it surely will come, it will be but an entrance into eternal glory. It will be an entrance into eternal glory, an entrance that leads to seeing our Lord and Savior face to face. Will we seek, will we strive to live in light of this risen Christ? Let's bow our heads in order of prayer. Father, your word says that we have been crucified with Christ. That for all who believe in your Son, it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us. Help us to live this life in the flesh by faith in the Son of God. Remind us that we have a Savior and Lord who loved us, who gave himself up for us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to not be driven by the values of our physical death, by this worldly death, but help us to be driven by the death of our risen Christ. Help us, Lord, to live in light of his great truth that in Christ, death has been conquered. In Christ, death no longer has any sting. Sin no longer has any power. Help us, Lord, to live in light of those great truths. And would you keep us? Would you hold on to us? Would you keep us fast? And hold us until that day when your son, Jesus, will indeed return to make all things new. But until that day, Lord, we ask that you would help us. Please help us. We thank you, Lord. We lift up these things in Jesus' name. Amen.